every week. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we do believe that this morning, that yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power forever and ever. Amen. And we believe this morning as uh, those of us that are your sons and daughters adopted into your family, that your kingdom is coming. Your kingdom's coming in this lifetime and your kingdom is coming in the next world for us. We pray, Lord, that as we open the eternal word of the Lord, that we will be able to see your word um, through that eternal lens, through uh, the lens of the kingdom. And I pray for clarity. I pray for you to strengthen our hearts today. I pray for you to illuminate our minds and to help us with revelation. And we ask all this in the powerful, precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. And amen. We're going to jump into the deep end this morning, and uh, we're going to go ahead and get into the text. But before we do that, I want to, I want to try to explain something that will help the text make more sense. Okay, in biblical studies, there's a discipline that's called typology, and the most simplistic way that I can un- can help a person understand what typology is is this idea that something has happened in the Old Testament. That is a picture of what Christ would do in the New Testament. It's like a foreshadowing, and there is a clear connection. Um, It's not just symbolism. It is symbolism, but it's more than that. It's something that is fulfilled in the life of Christ. And so um, there are a couple of different types of typology. There's one type of typology where there's something that happens in the Old Testament, and the New Testament makes the connection for you. Okay, so Jesus in the New Testament, he's looking back at the old, and this is what he says. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. So in that way, Jonah is a type of Jesus, and the scripture makes the connection for you. Okay, Um, the writer of Hebrews talked about the Passover lamb. In the book of Exodus, there was this event where God was sending judgment to the nation, but God gave them a remedy. And he said, if you will just take a spotless, innocent lamb without blemish, shed the blood of that lamb, and take the blood and put it over the doorpost of your home, when the judgment of God comes, the judgment will pass over you because God will see the blood applied to you right? That was a picture of the work of Christ in the New Testament. Now, when the Jesus as the, you know, the sinless lamb of God, he shed his blood and spiritually through faith, as we receive the blood of Christ, as it is applied to our hearts at death, when we face the judgment of God, the judgment of God will pass over us because the blood of the lamb rests on us. Okay, so this is a picture. It's something that happened in the New Testament that makes this strong connection to the work of Christ in the New Testament. There are other typologies that aren't exactly that clear, okay? It's not, it's something that happened in the Old Testament that 
the New Testament doesn't really speak of, but it's clear that that's what God is attempting to do, but you have to make the connection in your mind. The scripture doesn't make the connection for you, okay? So for instance, as uh, God is in the garden with Adam and Eve, they, they sin against God, they rebel. It's the fall of humanity. They're covering themselves because they realize their nakedness and their shame. The Bible says that when God sees what they've done, God goes to an innocent animal. He sheds the blood of the animal, because the Bible later says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So he sheds the blood of an animal. He takes the animal skins and he cloaks Adam and Eve. He, he not only cloaks their nakedness, but their sin and their shame. Okay, it's an act of forgiveness. What God is doing there is he's showing you the finished work that Christ will actually do for us in the covering of our sin and our shame. Okay, so there are some things where we have to make the connection. You see in Genesis, as Abraham takes Isaac, his, the Bible says his one and only son, and he leads them up, him up to the mountain to be sacrificed. Abraham, or Isaac is carrying the wood on his back for the sacrifice. I mean, just over and over and over again, you can see Jesus in that. But again, the New Testament doesn't make the connection for you. You have to make that connection, Okay. So there are all these different types of typology, but the most important thing I'm, I want to communicate about, about typology is, is this, is typology is not this random assigning of meaning to the text, okay? Let me give you an example. You've, uh, I'm sure if you've been around Christianity very long, you've read a book or heard a sermon. I probably preach these sermons, okay, but... Um, you, you probably heard somebody or, or read somebody who writes about David as he goes to face off with Goliath. And the Bible says that David scoops up five smooth stones, right? And so the author of a book may go and say, and those stones represent, the first stone represents fear. God wants to destroy the fear that's in your life. And the second stone represents lust. God wants to dismantle the lust from your life. And the third stone, and just on and on and on, and again, I'll probably preach sermons like that. And I know that God can use sermons like that. But that is not an accurate use of the word of God. That is a very dangerous. I mean, you could look at scripture and just be like, okay, anytime I see the word green, um, that means that God is talking about money. God wants to bless me. God's going to bless money. So anytime I see a scripture that says the word green, I'm just going to assume that God, I receive it, Jesus. I receive it, you know. And, and it's just a, a, a total misuse of the text. That is not what typology is. Typology, there is a crystal clear connection. It makes everything clear that this is pointing to the work of Christ. It's almost as if God in his sovereignty, you know, he, he just, throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, throughout human history, he just, he, he would leave a breadcrumb and people would flock to the breadcrumb and they would see this miraculous event and then he would kind of go over here and drop a little bit more in the same thing and he would go on and on, not realizing all throughout human history, all of these different events that are happening in the Old Testament, they're actually not just independent events, but they're leading not to different breadcrumbs, but ultimately to the bread of life. They're ultimately pointing to something greater, right? That's what typology is. Okay, so here in the text, what we have is Jesus, he's, you know, performing miracles, he is doing his teaching ministry, he has gained, gained tremendous attention, so much so that the highest ranking officials in Judaism has taken notice. 
Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the cover of night. He begins to have this conversation. He's saying, teacher, you know, clearly, Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, it's clear that you've come from God. Because nobody can do the stuff that you're doing unless they've come from God. And so they begin to have this conversation, and it's a conversation that revolves around the salvation of the soul. Nicodemus is saying, well, well, Lord, how can a person enter the kingdom of God? And so Jesus looks at Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of all the other teachers in Israel. The teachers of Israel come to you to learn, and you don't even understand what's going on here? And so Jesus then begins to go, and he begins to unpack what it means to enter the kingdom and He begins to use all of this language that, you know, about being born a second time and about spiritual blindness and about the wind blowing, and he uses all of these things. But at a certain point in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he says one sentence that just seems so out of left field. Like, if you're reading it and you've never read the Old Testament— If you don't know anything about Moses, if you don't know anything about the events we're going to read in a minute, you would look at that and say, why would Jesus say something so bizarre in in a moment like this, right? But for Nicodemus, what it does is it, it reminds him of something he already knows, and it crystallizes what Jesus is trying to say, right? This is what he says in John chapter 3, okay? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and just randomly he throws this in. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. If you were just reading that, and you had no idea about Moses or a snake, you would think that was bizarre. But for Nicodemus, that one sentence opened his mind into the revelation of what God was not just doing in the desert, but what God was ultimately trying to do in the work and the life of Jesus, right? And so today, all I want to do is I want to read the text to you. I want to I read the events that happened that Jesus referenced. And all I want to do is just make the connection for us. I want to see what happened here and where is the connection to Christ. What happened here, what is the connection to Christ? For some of us, a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about today are very elementary, right? They're, they're very just kind of foundational Christianity 101. But there are two reasons I think it's important to revisit things like this. Number one, um, for those who are not in relationship with Christ, uh, I think it's essential that we help folks understand the gospel, right? That's, that's the only way that we have come to faith in Christ. But number two, for those of us who are walking with the Lord, um, we remind ourselves of the good things that God has done. Number one, so it never becomes old to us. It never gets stale. It never gets sterile. We're, we're churned. We're reminded by the inspiration of the Spirit that there is so much to be grateful for. And so it informs our worship. It inspires us with gratitude. It, it does all this stuff. So even though it may seem elementary, okay, to, to some of us, because I, I do, I think we're a very mature church in the Lord, um, I would simply say this. Just allow the Lord to speak what he would speak. Wherever you're at in the spiritual journey, just, just, just relax, put down the guards, and let the Lord speak on whatever level he would speak. And we'll go from there, okay? So Jesus says, just as the servant was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Opens the eyes of Nicodemus. Nicodemus' minds go, his mind goes back to the book of Numbers where Moses has been raised up as a great deliverer. He has delivered uh, Israel from Egyptian bondage. And for 40 years, they've gone through this wilderness period. And God is trying to take them from bondage through a wilderness so that they can inherit a new land. 
And as they're going through this, just time and time again, the people are frustrating God. I mean, they're just frustrating God. They're, they're ungrateful. They complain like, like, like a college football fan. They just complain about anything and everything, and they frustrate the Lord. Um, great wins, by the way, both teams, all right, last night. Very good, okay. They just frustrate the Lord and just on and on and on. It's this whole drama for 40 years, so much so God gets so fed up that he allows an entire generation. He says, you know what? You guys are so ungrateful. Your entire generation is going to die and you're not going to inherit the land, but your children are going to inherit the land. Man, there's some lessons in there for that, okay? But that's where we're at. We're at the end of this time where they are about to enter into this promised land and this is what scripture says. The people of Israel traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and this food is miserable food. We detest this miserable food, which, by the way, was food that God himself had given to them, okay? So the Lord, in his frustration, once again, he's looking down and he's like, you're just like your parents, okay? The Bible says this, then the Lord frustrated, the Lord sent venomous, or one translation says fiery, the best translation says fiery snakes among the people of Israel. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and they said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and spoke against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. So a few weeks ago, my sister and my nephew came into town and they wanted to go tubing. And I like tubing. I was like, this would be great. So we took all of my 86 children, her child, and we all went out on the Saluda River. We're going down the river. And um, they, they kind of link you up with, like, your, your small children. So I had Ella, like, attached to my tube. And we're going down the river. It's a beautiful day. It's, it's hot, you know, but the water's cold. It's very refreshing. We're enjoying. And all of a sudden, I realized that I had put my cell phone in my pocket, the pocket of my swim shorts, which has no traction. You know, it's just, like, slick as not. And, and I'm sitting in a tube, which means that my leg was elevated this way. And all of a sudden, about 15 minutes down the river, I'm just like, oh, no. And Joy looked at me. She said, you lost your phone. And I said, I said, oh, no. And she said, check in the bottom of the tube. And in the bottom of the tube, it's like there's this covering, but there's like this donut-sized hole in the bottom of the tube, but everything else is like this flat surface. So Joy is like, you know, fill, fill the bottom. Of the, it, it may have, the tube may have caught your phone. And so I'm like, I'm like, okay. You know, I reach down, and she says, but don't knock it in the hole. And as soon as she said that, Literally, the word, I mean, it, it went down. And I was just like, oh, my golly, right? 
And so I, I look down, I'm, I'm trying to see the phone and everything, and the whole time, Joy and my sister, they're yelling, jump in, jump in, get the phone. And I'm like trying to, discern, I'm like, I, it's, it's black. It's, I, what do you mean get the phone? And they're like, just jump in and get the phone. We're going this direction. The phone is over there. So I'm like paddling and waves. I'm like, you know, Ella is freaking out. What is happening right now? She's crying. The women are yelling. I'm just trying to like focus on what's going on. And so I'm going and, and I'm looking through the water in the glare of the sun. And then, you know, you got some rocks down there and they look shiny. And I'm like, is that my phone? Is that my phone? And all this stuff. And then all of a sudden I look and I see on my phone, on the back of my phone, I have a metal magnet so that I can attach it to another magnet in my vehicle. And, and the phone just so happened to land on its face. And this metal piece, the, the sun was glaring off of it. And I looked, it was like an angel from heaven. And so I looked down, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And the whole time they're like, jump in. And I'm like, I'm going to. So I stand up on the tube and I take off my shirt. And I do this incredible swan dive. And there was no splash. I mean, it was beautiful. And I went down, I must have swam down 40 feet, right? And I'm looking and I see the glare of it. And I go and I latch onto it. I grab it in my hand, I shoot back up out of the water victorious. I have my phone in hand. I'm dismantling the haters. I'm like, you said to jump in and you were wrong. I was right. I waited. I used wisdom. Get up. I can't breathe because the water's so cold. Joy doesn't care. She's like, just preserve the phone. <laughs> so I get up out of the water and I realize that I had my phone, but the only way that, that I could see the phone is because the way that the phone had landed and the sun had shone light on it in such a way to illuminate my mind, okay? This is very much the experience that Nicodemus is having, right? Throughout history, listen, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He would have known many of the Pharisees, they were raised to memorize the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the first five books of the, the Old Testament. I mean, that's, that's an amazing feat. Uh, Nicodemus would have known about the serpent in the wilderness, but it's almost like he was looking and like there were glares and could it mean this, but it was kind of murky and just not really sure what was going on. But all of a sudden, when Jesus steps in, it's like he shines a light on the event. And he says, oh, this is actually where it is. And this is actually what it means. And so in this moment for Nicodemus, have you ever had a moment of profound revelation? This is what Nicodemus is going through in this moment. It's like something that has been so mystical and so dark for so long. Now all of a sudden it's reflecting glory. All of a sudden it's reflecting revelation. All of a sudden he is connecting the dots. He's understanding what Jesus is actually saying. And listen to me, out of all that John 3 produces for us, the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, listen to me, there's a lot there. And it is profound and it is deep and it is super, super meaningful. For Nicodemus in that moment, this may have been the most profound moment for him whatsoever. Because for something that he may have wrestled with his entire life not understanding, now all of a sudden he sees it clearly. And not only does he see it clearly, but he sees the sovereign hand of God setting it up for the thousands of years that would come later and be fulfilled in the life of Christ. So this is the type of moment that Nicodemus is having, right? 
The children of Israel are on the cusp of the promised land. They're, they're, they're just on, they are, they are bumping up against this area. It's called the Gulf of Aqaba, right? And that's still what, what those in the Middle East call it today, but it's this, you know, it's this Gulf area. And in the area, it is a, a pretty desert region. It's very arid, um, very dry, um, very much, if you've been to Israel, very much like the, the Dead Sea area. There's, there's not a lot of life and activity there. And this area, even today in modern times, the area is known for its venomous reptiles, okay? So it's known for snakes and lizards, maybe turtles, I don't know, that are, I don't know, okay? But they're known for the dangerous reptiles. And so I, I started doing a little bit of digging, okay? And there are a lot of opinions. We can't prove this by any stretch of the imagination. But there is a snake that is known in, in this region of the Gulf of Aqaba, and it is called the Egyptian cobra, Okay, um, there, there are a couple different names for it. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I would embarrass myself, but I want to show you a photo of what, what this snake may have looked like. Okay, um, this, is a, this is the Egyptian cobra. Now, in the text, what the Lord says about the serpent is it is a fiery serpent. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. So we don't know if perhaps this was the snake and they were called fiery because it looks like fiery, okay? Or we don't know if maybe the snake's venom produced such a sting that it was like a fiery burn. We don't know if it was both or neither. We, we really don't know, okay? But my point in saying all that is to simply say that they were in a region where these things are abundant, okay? So what, what is being read in the text, this isn't like a metaphor. God isn't saying, I sent fiery serpents, but it actually, it means this. No, they were actual fiery serpents that came and bit the people, okay? God himself sent these to bite the people. And so this is a real event that's happening. And again, I just want to remind us as we begin to just go through all these different, all these different connections, it's, it's just simply a reminder for us that these events we're seeing in the Old Testament, they are pictures of the finished work of Jesus on the cross in the New Testament. Okay, that's what this is about um, this morning. So I'm going to do my best to connect the dots and I'm going to do my best to make it make sense, okay? Um, but if I can't make it make sense, just kind of smile and make me feel like I did, okay? It'll make us both feel better, okay? Here we go. Here we go. Let's talk about the serpent and the Savior. In your notes, number one, your notes say that in the same way that the snake bite physically killed the children of Israel, they were infected, okay? And it killed them physically. Sin spiritually kills those who are infected, okay? So in a, very, in a very elementary way to understand it, what I want to communicate is that all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we came from, the, the family we were born into, it doesn't really matter. We were all bitten by sin. We are infected with, and I don't mean like individuals, I mean universally, we are a part of a sinful, broken world, okay? Um, Paul would say it like this. He said, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. Adam's sin brought death, so physical death and spiritual death spread to everyone because everybody sinned, okay? So what Paul is trying to say here, he's saying, listen, from the very beginning when Adam sinned against God, because he was your great, 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 and on and on and on, grandfather, okay, you inherited that sin all the way down through human history. 
And listen, not just you, but every human who would ever live. We have all been born into what we call a sinful nature. We've been born into sin, meaning that we will sin. And what we realize is this, is that it's like a spiritual cancer that is inside of every person ever born. And it's not just that it exists, it's a part of who we are. It is metastasized. And the longer that we go in life, the, the, the greater of an impact that we feel on so many different levels. We see this in, in the physical sense, right? We see it in, in the way that we think. We see it in the way that we feel, all the emotions that we go through. But I want to make the point that, that sin isn't just something that affects us in the natural. It's something that affects us in the supernatural. In the natural, you know, I used to be able to see really, really clearly anything from a long way away, right? But when I turned 40, it was all of a sudden like God was like, tricked you, you can't see anything now, you know? And like, I can see, but I can only see clearly about 30 feet in front of me, right? And then anything beyond that is all just kind of blurred. Now, up close, I'm good, okay? And you look at that and you say, well, it's because you turned 40. And I look at that and say, no, it's because I'm born with a sin nature. And that is one of the ramifications and the effects of sin. This is why people need canes. This is why people deteriorate physically. These reasons, these are a result of the sin nature that we have. This is why we have death. So we know that, that sin affects us on a physical level. There's no question about that. But the reality is this, that it also affects us in the spiritual realm as, as well, okay? Jesus would say this, listen, you're going to die once, right? It's appointed unto men to die once. It's going to happen because you're a sinner, okay? However, for those who are outside of Christ, sin is going to cause a second death. In other words, it's not just about this life and we die and turn to carbon. It's that we die and then we face a judgment and those who are outside of Christ, they face a second death. Why? Because sin. And that's a repercussion of the sin nature that we have inherited. The struggle is, is that those who are outside of the faith, you, before you came to faith in Christ, you were blinded to this reality, right? You, you didn't have a clue. You, don't, you didn't see the world the way that you see it today if you're a Christian. You were blinded to the fact that there was something deep and sinister that was a part of your very being. But there comes a moment where God comes down in his goodness and graciousness and love and he touches the eyes of the heart or he touches the mind. He brings illumination and he brings understanding. And when he brings understanding, it's in that moment where we see our brokenness and we see his goodness. And it's in that moment we make a decision for Christ and all that he's offered. But the reality remains that, that we're in this, this universal, you know, uh, sin nature, right? Um, the wisest man who would ever live multiple times, Solomon, he would say this, there are no good people. There are no people who always do good. Everybody sins, okay? The apostle John, which was Jesus's, is argumented, but, but, but most people would, would consider John the beloved to be Jesus's closest earthly friend. And this is what John said. He said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. In other words, if, if there's a person, even if they're spiritually blinded, and they say, I'm not a sin, I, I don't do wrong, I don't, you know, I do a lot of good things in life, I'm a good person. If they use that type of mentality, what John is saying is he is saying, even in your blindness, you are sinning and don't even realize it because you're lying to yourself. 
right? It's like this, this, this super interconnected language that John's using. Paul would say this. He said, you were spiritually dead in your transgression and in your sin, meaning this. Okay, here's, here's the nutshell of it, and you know this. All of us, regardless, all of us are separated from God and dead in our sin, and we need forgiveness from God, and we need reconciliation with the Father, right? Last week, um, we, we talked a lot about this, um, and my wife wasn't able to be in here uh, last week, so um, I guess people were texting her. I don't know if it was good or bad or ugly, but they, they were texting her about the message, and she, uh, she came to me afterwards. She said, she said, were you telling people how terrible they are again? And, uh, and I said, well, if you mean I was revealing to people that they are born sinners and they have inherited a sinful nature, if that's what you mean by terrible people, yeah, I told them they were terrible people. And it was a pretty funny moment. She, she got that because years ago I, I preached a very similar sermon. And um, there was a, a young guy that, that had come to the church, I guess, that day. And later that week I saw him. And I didn't know who he was. He didn't know who I was, but he recognized me. And he came and he was like, he was like, hey, man, I, I know you. And I was like, okay, hey, man, you know, and I, I'm just trying to, you can tell he's so nervous. He's just like, you're a, a man, I know you. And, and he's stuttering for words. And then he just, he said, I'm a terrible person. And I said, I said, oh, yeah, you were, you were at church the other day. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's where I know you from. <laughs> and and listen to me. I, I mean, I want to make this clear. I hope it's evident, okay? But the only reason that needs to be emphasized is so that we understand the depth of our depravity so that we can reach to God and understand how, how desperately our situation is, right? That's, that's the only thing. But I think it's vital that, that we understand it. When we see God for who he is, and listen to me say this, that's, that's not really the trouble. The trouble is seeing us for how we really are, Right? But, but I, want you to, I want you to just think about all the different times throughout Scripture where men and women of God would see the holiness of God and the goodness of God, the glory of God. And I want you to think about these, these icons of our faith. And I want you to think about how they responded when they saw the glory of God compared to their own cleanness. Moses, perhaps the most incredible man of God who had ever lived before the time of Jesus, Moses himself, the Bible says when he saw the goodness and the purity of God, that Moses hid himself in shame because he realized how broken he was and how unbroken God was. The prophet Ezekiel, he cried out, he said, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. John, as close as he was to Jesus, the Bible says when he saw Jesus in his glory, that he fell as if he were a dead man. My point is this, is that when we truly see the goodness of God and we see who we really are, what we're born into, right, there is a response to that. And it's either to reject the notion or it's to accept the notion and to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, right? But we first got to understand that, 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 that we're, we're, we're infected. We're, we're, like, we're, we're infected with this, this spiritual disease and it is not only going to have a damning effect in this life, but potentially in the life to come. And so we can't realize that we need rescue until we realize what we need rescue from. It was the same thing for the children of Israel, okay? So 
number one, the point is, is that, you know, they were dying physically, but we were born into a system where we are dying spiritually. Number two is this, in the same way that Moses was a mediator between Israel and God, Jesus came to be a mediator between us and the Father, okay? Now, we got to realize Israel's situation, right? There's millions of them. There's some, some estimate one to three million Israelites are traveling through this wilderness, and Moses is like their dad, you know, just get in line, you know, and maybe the most patient man <laughs> who has ever walked the face of the earth, okay? But Moses remained faithful to them, but they find themselves in this situation where these snakes are, are infesting their camp. The language that's being used, it, it throws you back to when God was judging Egypt through Moses. And you remember the 10 plagues that come, and one of the plagues was that God sent frogs into the land and infested the land. It's the same language that's used here about the snakes. It wasn't just a few snakes they were dealing with. There was an infestation in their sheets, and then, you know, they go to cook in their pots and pans, and there's another viper, and just, just on and on and on. There, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these serpents that are just making their way into this camp, and so they realize at a certain point, this is because we've sinned against you, we've sinned against the Lord. And so Moses, what we're asking you to do is we're asking you to go and to pray on our behalf, right? And so the Bible says that Moses, he does that because Israel was over here and they understood we're under the judgment of God. There's nothing that we can do to touch God. But Moses, we believe that you can touch God. And so they would, cont- I mean, this is from the inception of their deliverance out of Egypt. The people of Israel never wanted to approach God. They always wanted a mediator. They always wanted somebody to go before them. And even in the beginning, they would say, you know, when God comes down on the mountain, they would go to approach it. They would say, dude, we don't want to do that. Moses, you go talk to God. Come tell us what he said. They never wanted to be the ones who touched God. But it's not just that they didn't want to be the ones to touch God. It was impossible for them to touch God. They needed a mediator between the two, and God raised up Moses to be the mediator. He was the bridge, and he was incredible, and Moses fulfilled this purpose so well. Moses would go, and he would, he would talk to the people, and then he would go to God and communicate with God, and God would speak, and he would go tell the people, and it was like this back-and-forth type relationship that was going on. But as amazing as Moses was, the best that he could do as far as a mediator goes is, is maximized in communication. That's all that he could do. What Moses failed to do, he was insufficient to do, was to be one who could bring reconciliation. He could bridge the worlds verbally, but he could not bridge the world spiritually. There had to be someone that was so different than anyone who had ever walked the face of the planet. There had to be someone that God raised up that could fill the gap not just to communicate between that which is otherworldly in this world, but to bridge those two worlds together. And God chose to do it in the form of his son. That's what Paul says. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, there's one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ, Jesus. Listen, it's not that... The people did not want healing in the same way that many people today. It's not like they don't want salvation or to understand who God is or to know God. The trouble is, is that it's impossible for them to do it. 
right? Because what God says, he says, listen, to bridge these two worlds together, my world is perfection, your world is broken. And in order to bridge these two worlds together, you've got to have a perfect gap filler. And Moses, as amazing as he was, he was filled with the sin nature. He could not fill the gap. And so God from heaven looks down and he says, man, these guys, they can't reach me because they can't fulfill the covenantal requirements that I require of them. They can't reach me. They fall short every single time. The reality is this. Some of us think that we can, right, even subconsciously. There are times even those of us who were Christians, right, and this is an enormous battle in my life for many, many years. But even though I believed that, that I was in, in, in the, the faith and, and I believe I was walking with Christ and I trusted in Christ, there was something a lot deeper subconsciously going on where I was really trying to earn the favor of God. I was like, you know what, I appreciate what Jesus did and I appreciate him opening the door, but I've got to be the one who makes sure that I secure that. As if there were anything that I could do to measure up. As if I could fill this, this vast gap with my good works and my perfection and doing the things that God requires. As, listen to me. I can't even fill, fulfill my own standards for my life. Right? Like, you can't either, okay, to be clear, okay? Do me this favor when you get home this afternoon, all right? I want you to go back two years. Actually, pick a year. I don't even care. Pick a year that you've been alive. Go to your calendar or your journal or whatever it is, diary, and go to January 1st of any year. Any year. And I want you just to like read through the resolutions that you made that year, right? And then what I want you to do is I want you to flip like six or eight pages. Uh, just, just go to January 10th to be safe. And I want you to tell me how good you are at keeping your standards, Right? And that's just, that's silly stuff like going to the gym or not eating sweets, okay? That's silly. We can't even live up to that, right? Much less a moral perfection that somehow in our minds we think that we can attain or achieve by doing not enough bad and more than enough good in order to do this. And the whole purpose of the cross is to help us understand it can't be done. It cannot be done. There had to be a mediator filled the gap. And as Paul said, the only mediator between God and man was the man Christ Jesus. So there, there was this enormous gap that had to be filled, okay? So number three, very quickly, in notes, in the same way the bronze serpent was without venom. Okay, now this one gets a little weird, so please try to stay with me. In the same way that the bronze serpent was without venom, Christ was without sin. Okay? Now, I used to, when I used to read this story, I used to think, why would God choose a serpent? Like, I understand God sending the fiery serpents as judgment. I understand that. But why is there saving grace? Would God tell them to formulate a serpent to look at the serpent? Because in my mind, serpents are associated with evil, right? Like, I, I hate them. I detest them. You know, I know there, there are these people that love snakes, and that's weird. But, but anyway, the point is, like, there is this... There's this notion in my mind that, that serpents are associated with evil. And so I'm like, Lord, why didn't you like have them fashion a heart, you know, or, or like a smiley face or something like that and look on this and you'll live. But, but no, he chose to do a serpent. And I thought for so long, why would he do that? And why would he do that? And through the years, what I began to realize was, was something that, that to me, at least in my mind, was, was incredibly profound. And it's this. The reason that, that God used a serpent on a pole is because it was a picture of Jesus in this way. Okay, in this way. On the outside 
The serpent looked like any other serpent. Even its color was bronze. Fiery serpents were probably bronze. On the outside, it looked like a serpent. But on the inside, there was no venom. On the inside, it was very, very different than all the other serpents, right? And this is what the picture painted is this. When Jesus came in human form, he looked very much like us on the outside. He, he would, he would he, listen, listen to what, what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And listen to what Paul says. He says, and he appeared in human form, right? So on the outside, Christ looked just like us. But on the inside, very, very different than us. Because for every single one of us, on the outside, we all kind of look alike. Some of us look better than others, okay? It just is what it is. But on the outside, we pretty much look like human. We don't confuse each other with aardvarks, okay? We look pretty much human. We look like humans on the outside. But on the inside, we are all identical in this. We all have a sin nature. We're all broken. We're all, we're all destroyed. At least we're, we're born into that. We're, we're all that way. When Christ was born, he was born in the appearance of a man, but on the inside, there was no sinful nature. In other words, there was no venom within him. And what the Lord was trying to do in, in elevating this serpent that looked like the other serpents, but had no venom inside of it, was to say, the one that I lift up will look like all of you, but there's no sin within him. There's no sin nature, right? The great Saint Augustine, he would, he would say, we revisited this a little bit last week, but Augustine would say that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, that God empowered them. He gave them the ability to be able to choose to sin against God or to choose not to sin against God. He gave them that ability to do that. But when Adam sinned against God, Adam lost the ability to choose anymore. Why? Because a sinful nature filled him. It wasn't, is Adam going to sin? No. Now it's, when is Adam going to sin, and what is it going to look like, and what are going to be the repercussions? When you and I were born, we were born into the sinful state where we no longer have the power to choose, will we obey God or will we disobey God? We are born with a sinful nature. Our inclination is towards sin. It's not if we will sin, it's when we will sin and what it will look like because we're naturally born sinners. Paul, stay with me, please stay with me. Paul said this about Jesus. He said, Jesus is the second Adam. In other words, in the same way that Adam was born with the ability to choose, do I obey God or do I disobey God? He had the power to do both of those, but he lost it because of his sin. Jesus was a type of Adam because Jesus was born with a God-like nature. He had a human nature and a God-like nature, but no sin nature. And so God endued him with the power to be able to choose whether he would obey God or choose whether he would reject God. And in the same way that Adam, when he fell, it affected all of us. Paul says that when Jesus obeyed, it has the ability to affect all of us. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so it's, it's the, this, the importance of understanding that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life is paramount as far as doctrines go. Because if he was just another snake filled with venom, he couldn't save anybody. But he wasn't. He was a human. 
born in the likeness of God and born in the likeness of man, but did not possess a sinful nature. And unlike Adam who fell and rebelled against the Father, Jesus chose to perfectly obey. And in his perfect obedience, listen to me say this, this is the power of the gospel. Not only does Jesus possess the power to forgive sin, you remember this is one of the main issues that the pharisaical leaders had with Christ. He, he said he has the power to forgive sin. I heard him tell this woman that her sins were forgiven. That's an issue. Jesus, in his perfect obedience, earned the right to forgive us of our sin. But can I go just even so much further than that? It wasn't just that he forgave us to sin and said, hey, man, you kind of you suck at this life thing, but I'm going to forgive you of your sin. Come on into the kingdom. It wasn't just that he allowed us into his kingdom. But the Bible says that he saw us in our sin, and he, like, he reached in and he, he took our sin. From the depth of our being, he took our sin, and he put it on himself. And when he took all of our sin, he put it on the cross, and he crucified it. It's not just that he can forgive, but he took it and he absorbed it into his own being. Paul said the righteous became unrighteous. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. So that we could stand before God saying, I have way messed it all up. But because of Jesus, now instead of Jesus just being a mediator, it's not that there's just this right here. Jesus now stands like this. And when the Father looks at me, he looks at me through the lens of Jesus. And so it's no longer what I do. It's no longer what I do. It's never been what I do. It's about his work. He doesn't even look at my work. He says, your work is like filthy rags, minstrel rags in my face. Get it out of here. But I look at the work of the Son who not only came in perfect obedience, but he came with the motive of love to seek and save that which was lost. And not only just to let us in, but to say, I'm letting you in as citizens far more than that. I'm letting you in as my kids. I've come to redeem you to such the degree that you will now be called my son, or my daughter. But it's nothing that you've done. It required a man who looks like you, but did not possess the same thing as you. And in his perfect obedience, he made a way for you in all of this. Man, we live in such a cynical, critical, secular society. You've heard, you know, talks or you've read books about, you know, from especially atheistic positions and, you know, they, they look at our God, they, they read the scripture and they'll, they'll go back to the Old Testament, the New Testament, and they'll say things like, you're telling me that your God, he could not save you, but instead he had to put his son through a torturous, painful, brutal death. Like he, he, was, he was bound by that. He had to do that type of thing. You know, and they'll, they'll label him like a monster, sadomasochistic, just bloodthirsty. Like, that's, that's what our world does. But can I tell you what our world is doing, even though they don't realize it because of the spiritual blindness? What they're doing is they're fulfilling Romans 1. We are the Romans. Uh, listen to me. Western society, if you want to understand who we are, take a glimpse into Romans 1. That is who we are. And this is what Paul said about the Romans. He said they exchanged the truth about God 
for a lie. They exchanged the truth about God that he is a good, merciful, patient, long-suffering, gracious, pursuant God. They have changed that and they have made him into a monster. One who just wants vengeance on humankind. And what they don't realize is that the reason that Christ died such a severe death, the reason that the father looked down and he said, no, if we're going to atone for the sins, it has to be done in this way. It's because what the people who make statements like that, what they don't realize is the severity of their sin required the severity of that death. You see, God in his wisdom understands that sometimes extreme situations call for extreme measures to be done. And how else am I going to communicate the severity of a person's sin? Let me tell you what, that's, that's the trouble in, in Western culture. We don't understand the severity of our sin. When we look at sin, we think of it as, I made a mistake. We look at it in terms of, well, I screwed up, I shouldn't have done that, right? But when God looks at our sin, he looks at it as, as I said, R.C. Sproul said last week, as cosmic rebellion. Like Adam's sin broke everything. It, it, it broke you, but it broke the planets. It broke all of creation. It had the power to divide. It had the power to conquer. And so in order for humanity to understand the depths and the lowness of where we are in our situation, yeah, he sent his son to die a very severe death because there was a very severe situation that we found ourselves in. But it was the only way to get it done. And thankfully, he did that. Number four, very quickly. I know, me too. They feel the same way, I'm just telling you. <laughs> number four, number four is this very quickly. In the same way, the bronze serpent was the only cure for the venom, just as Christ is the only cure for sin. I'm sure that the people of Israel, like, they were taking all kind of different measures to get the venom out of their loved ones. I'm sure there were like some people when they saw all the people dying. I'm sure that some of the people, if they saw a family member get bitten on the ankle, they said, cut it off. Just cut it off. If you don't, if he'll either lose the leg or he'll lose his life. Cut it off. I'm sure some of that was happening. I'm sure there were other people that were like, you know, trying to suck the venom out. You know, I got bit on the hand. Suck it out. Just get it. You know, all this kind of stuff. And you know what's crazy about this? What, what, what we, can, we can jump. This is an assumption, but, but I think it's logical to jump to the assumption that God would not allow people to be saved by any other means. But he said, listen, the only way they will be able to live is if they look on my solution. I will empower them to live and to be healed. Right? This is a perfect picture of our salvation in Christ Jesus. In the same way God made access to forgiveness and reconciliation through one lane, right? We're accused so much, and, and um, other religions even will, will accuse the Christian faith of being uh, very, very exclusive, right? Well, you guys say you got to do this and do that and believe this and believe that. They were like, but, but what about all these other religions, and what about what they believe, and Societal, you know, the mindset is kind of like really religions are this bit, one big melting pot and they're all going to kind of cook out the same way. It's all ultimately going to be the same thing. People just pick different religions. Friend, that is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And listen to this. This is the most important. Out of that whole amazing sentence right there, the second half of the sentence is probably more uh, profound than anything. This is what he said. He said, no one comes to the Father. Nobody in the sea of humanity comes to the Father 
except through me. Nobody. We're accused of being very exclusive, and I will say that's pretty exclusive, right? (laughs) I mean, that's pretty exclusive, right? But also remind us that, and I would remind those who would say such things, I would also remind us that we're pretty much the most inclusive religion that's ever existed also, right? Because Jesus said, because of my work on the cross, anybody who wants to come, you can come, right? It's, it's exclusive. There's one lane, but listen to me, it's inclusive. that Anybody can come. If you understand this, come on, and we'll bring you in. But there was only one solution in order to ratify this. We struggle with this in Western culture, man. Listen to me. There's, a, there's such a mindset of syncretism. We, we have, we have mar- married all these things together. And even those of us that are practicing in, in the Christian faith, some of us don't even really believe it. I was reading a study a few years ago, and this was a, a legit study. Thousands of evangelical Christians in the, in the United States, four out of ten believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Do you know that you're an, if you're here today and you've put your faith in Christ, you're an evangelical Christian, okay? You're, you're a part of this movement. The study said four out of 10 believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. From that syncretism, we've, we've taken all these different pockets and we've synchronized them together and we've made a false religion and believing that God will do all these. No, no, no. Listen, there's one way to the Father. Whether it be through salvation, whether it be through worship, there's one way to the Father, is through the Son, Jesus. There's just one way to the Father, right? And I'm going to tell you that that's difficult for us. Again, there's like this subconscious thing in, in so many of us that say, I appreciate what Christ did, but kind of, I, can kind of, I can kind of work my way into this type thing. And, and, and I'm just telling you, it's futile. It's so futile. There's nothing that we rely on outside of the finished work of Jesus on the cross his burial, and his bodily resurrection. There's nothing that we depend on. It's not being a good person. It's not tipping the scales. It's not other religions. It's not putting kind of my faith. It's putting my faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. I remember a few years ago, my, one of my children, if you know my family, you can connect the dots. One of my kids, um, they decided that they would dye their hair purple without permission from our family or from my wife and I. And another one of my children, we were so upset. I was so upset, right? I was like, punishment is coming, okay? I was, you can't do this, shouldn't do this. You knew we didn't want this, yada, yada, all this stuff. Another one of my children who was much younger at that time was sitting in the back seat, and they said, um, Dad, you know what you ought to tell them? You ought to tell them that you can wash the dye out of your hair, but you can't wash the sin away. Right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, yes and no. Because if you ever say that to your sibling, you will no longer exist. Okay? So don't ever say that. But, but and although I understand what he's saying, it, I mean, really, he's true. You can do all these things to try to edge it out of your life, but you can't wash the sin away. There is there's one lane, one way is through the son, Jesus. Let's move on. All right, number five is this. We're wrapping things up. Number five. In the same way, Israel's physical healing required the people, it required action and belief. Our spiritual healing, listen, our reconciliation, our forgiveness, it still requires action and belief. 
it's, it's pretty sobering to realize that only the people of Israel who looked at the serpent lived. It's pretty sobering to think that because the serpent was for everybody to see. But it's pretty clear from the text that not everybody chose to do that, right? And perhaps it was more because it wasn't just the simple act of looking, okay? The word look that's used here when you, when you break it down and you, you begin to understand what it really means, it's not really the idea of physically looking, it's the idea of belief, in other words, what God was saying, he was saying, listen, when you, when you lift up the serpent and people look on that, he wasn't just saying when they physically look, he was saying when they trust in that. They've heard the rumors, they've heard the stories. And if I will just look and believe, there's going to be a supernatural exchange here where I'm going to give salvation and I'm going to take away the poison from them, right? But it wasn't just this idea of, of, of physically looking. It was this notion that I have to look and I have to believe on this thing in order to be saved. Okay, so let me show you this. This is impromptu in first service, so we'll see how this goes, okay? If not, we can just edit it out, okay? But let's just say this. Let's say that the floor actually is lava, okay? Let's say that the floor actually is lava. And I find myself in a situation where the floor is eroding from me, right? It's turning to lava, I'm going to perish. But all of a sudden, I see this stool over here, and this stool has incredible strength. It is a fortified metallic metal that will not bolt under the pressure of any type of heat. In other words, out of everything in this room, the only thing that's not going to perish is this stool, right? So if I'm over here and I realize that the floor actually is lava, the earth is eroding from me, is it enough for me just to look at that chair and be like, oh, that could help? No. No. Right? What is, what is the action? Right? Ah! Ah! And I'm sitting on it. I'm standing on it. I'm safe. Right? Now, why would a person act so foolish? Okay? Well, a person would only act so foolish if they understood the desperation of their situation. If the floor actually was lava, they would look for anything of stability. Right? But especially something that they had seen others experience that could save them, that could rescue them from the fate that waits them. And so for a person to realize the situation they're in, to see that this isn't going to end well for me, but to see something that I can throw myself on, it's not enough that I just look. It's enough that I believe it to such a degree that I physically throw myself upon this thing and I trust it in that way. That's the language that's being used. I am, I am not just looking at a serpent like they did a good job architecturally with that. That's not what it is. He's looking at, the, the people are looking, they're saying, I throw myself and believe that this is going to heal me. It's, it's my only hope. I throw myself on this thing. And this, my friends, is a beautiful picture of the cross of Christ. Understanding the desperation of my situation. That it's appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment. And the only way that judgment can be evaded is if I look on the one who was crucified and I believe to such a degree that I throw my entire life on him, that I rely on him, that I, that I cling to him, that I latch to him in such a way. It's not just a simple look and, and think that's neat. It's a, it's a reliance of the life. And as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, this is what he's trying to get Nicodemus to understand. Nicodemus, you've been amazing. 
You've been so faithful in Judaism. You've been so good and so, so wholesome. You have worshiped in such a good way, but you're still in a fallen nature. And as he refreshed and he reminded Nicodemus of the serpent lifted up, the illumination that must have filled Nicodemus' mind, you're saying it wasn't just about looking at the serpent. It was about throwing myself on him. And Messiah, what you're saying is that it's no longer about the stuff that I do, and it's not just about acknowledging who you are, but it's about throwing myself on your mercy. That's what you're saying to me. And the Lord would say, that's exactly the picture that was painted in the Old Testament. And that is exactly the fulfillment that you're going to find in the crucified Christ. So it required something from the people. And then finally, number six is this. In the same way the bronze serpent was put on a pole and lifted up, Jesus was also put on a cross and lifted up. So there are millions of people in Israel. Millions. One, two, three million people in Israel. Moses could only fashion a pole that was so high. But he does so because what Moses understands is that there are millions of people here and there are people on the outskirts that are suffering this judgment. And if we don't raise the pole high enough, these people are going to die in their sin, right? They're going to die under this judgment. And so Moses fashions this pole and, you know, we can, and again, this is an assumption, but, but I would assume that Moses went to the highest elevated point in the area and he lifted it up so that everybody could see so that everybody could throw their trust on that and they would receive that supernatural provision and forgiveness, the reconciliation, they, they could do that. And what I find so fascinating that the text leaves out is this idea that anybody would have ever tried to prevent people from looking and believing. There wasn't, Moses didn't have like this interior guard that was like, you know those guys, I, you know, I, I love them, I hope they go to heaven, but you need to make sure they don't see that because I kind of want them to die, okay? Right? And he doesn't like commit these guys, he's like, don't look, don't look and don't believe. No, Moses lifted it as high as he could so that anybody could see it, so that everybody could be healed. In the same way, listen to Jesus' words. He said, when I am high and lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. Jesus was saying this. He was saying, just as the serpent was lifted up, I'm going to be lifted up too. But I'm going to be lifted up in a lot of different ways. And as I am lifted up, I am going to draw people unto me. And there's not going to be, there's not going to be anybody who doesn't have the ability to see. Jesus was lifted up in, in the resurrection. He was lifted up on the cross he was lifted up on the, in the resurrection. He was lifted up in the ascension. But can I tell you this? Jesus is being lifted up this morning. As we worship God in song, as we declare the word of God, Jesus is being lifted up. And listen to me. When you go to work and you walk out the Christian faith, Jesus is being lifted up. And through these things, through these things, as Jesus is lifted up, he will draw people unto himself. And all people will have an opportunity to look on him and to believe in his finished work so that they can receive the healing and the salvation that they so desperately, desperately need. Paul wrote to Titus, he said, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Paul said, everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God in his goodness and faithfulness to us as humanity, even in our 
rebellion, our rejection of him. In his love, he has pursued us. And he illuminates the mind, he illuminates the heart, helps us understand the desperation of our situation, lifts himself up and says, just look and live. Throw yourself on me and let me take the heavy lifting for you as you enter into the kingdom. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so here's the, here's the deal as we wrap this up. The sobering thing, I think I said a few minutes ago, is that not everybody in Israel looked and lived. Some denied and died. And there's a, a very real reality in this, that in our present era, throughout all of human history, everyone hasn't looked and lived. There have been people who denied the finished work of Christ. They died in this life, but then they have gone on to face a second death in hell. And the frustrating thing, I'm sure, in the, in the mind of God, in the heart of God, is that he's done everything. Like, he's not explored any cubby that couldn't be explored. He, it's not like he didn't dot enough I's or cross enough T's. He has done everything that could be done. And listen to me. It wasn't just to save people. It was to go after his enemies. Those who rebelled and sinned against God. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love when he sent Christ to die for us as sinners, as enemies, as rebels. And so for the God of the universe to look on all of humanity and see so many people, as he says, I've lifted up my son, but you continue to not look and to not live. You continue to deny him and you're going to die in your sin. If you don't, it's just, I'm sure for the father is mind boggling that we would possess such a mentality that we would be so broken in our sins. I, um, I've seen this, this photo floating around um, socials lately. I want to I show you this, this, this photo of this little lamb, right? It's a beautiful, to me, it's a beautiful depiction of the pursuant uh, heart of God after those who have run from him, right? Just to be clear, we're the lamb, okay? <laughs> this is Jesus, and, and this is what the writer Isaiah would say, the prophet Isaiah. He said, all of us have gone astray. All of us, we have avoided the path of God, and we have gone our own direction. We've rebelled against God. We've strayed from God. And as I saw this a couple of weeks ago, I thought, this is such a beautiful depiction of the God of the universe chasing after a little, scraggly, filthy, ugly, those things are ugly, I don't care what you say, ugly little lamb <laughs> that not only is running from him, but has bit the hand that has tried to save him and continues to do that. This is the God that we serve. And listen to me, if you're walking with Christ today, it's, only, it's not because you ever turned around to him. It's only because he caught up to you, Right? But the thing is this, and this is the sobering thing that we have to get our minds around. For those who have chosen, they, they've seen all of what God has done, but they, they, cho they still choose to resist the work of God. Right? They, they see the, 
they see the man chasing after them. The, that, that came to seek and to save that which was lost. They, they see this, but they continue to run, and they continue to evade, and they continue to resist, and, and all of these different things. Here's a very, like, sobering reality, and I know that, that most of us, this is going to offend, you know, the, the heart and the mind of some. It's going to offend some, some theology here, but, but, it, but it's true. The reality is this, is that God will pursue and do everything in his power. Not that he hasn't already done enough, but he will continue to pursue. But there is a certain point where the resistance of a person can, in some ways, i got to be careful how I say this, but it can almost cause God to say, okay, this is what you wanted. This is what you'll get. Paul said of the Romans, he said, um, he said God turned them over to what they wanted. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say this, like for people who continue to resist and they have this notion in their mind, they're like, yes, but I'm just not ready. Yes, maybe later. Yes, maybe whatever. Uh, the reality is this. There, there may come a point that you don't have control over the situation anymore. I know we don't like this, okay? I was reading one author who said this. In the Gospels, there were more than 40 times where Jesus went to pursue someone and made them an offer to come to him. And 40 times, he allowed them to turn and to go their own way. We have the sensitized version of the Christ in our minds, that he is so desperate for us, that he can't do anything without us. You know, you, anyway. We've got this mindset that, like, he can't live without us. That he's, listen to me, that's not the picture, that's not the biblical picture of God. God pursued, he desperately wants us. He's humiliated himself to have us, and he has pursued us. But I will tell you that there is a resistance that can push back on God. And it's not a place that any of us want to be in. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply this. I know we're all, you know, uh, I've been afraid, like, oh, did I commit blasphemy, you know, or whatever. Uh, the reality is this. Blasphemy only occurs at death. And this is the blasphemy. When a person has willfully and finally rejected the Spirit's work to draw them to salvation, and they die in that moment, that is the sin of blasphemy, it's unforgivable. That person has sealed their fate. Okay? I'm not trying to manipulate this moment or anything like that. Please understand my heart. But I am saying there's a reality that every single one of us need to grip. You know, we're, we're filled in a world that have conspiracy theories, right? I think they're funny. I mean, I think they're so funny. Uh, I mean, just so many things. I've got somebody who's arguing with me right now about the moon landing. Um, a, a guy stopped my wife in, a couple of years ago in Walmart, and she was buying some soup for our kids. And she, he went over and he, he did like this to the Chef Boyardee product. And he said, don't do this. They're putting vaccines in the soup. You know? <laughs> we think birds are robots and the president's an alien or something. I don't know. We just believe some, some really weird stuff, right? Some of it may be true. I don't know. But let me tell you one thing that's not a conspiracy. The death of every human being. The reality that whether you believe it or not or whether you like it or not, you will face the God creator and the ultimate judge of every person. 
And that should provoke a response within us. Not a fearful that we, now we should be afraid on this side of Christ. But when we look at what he has done to secure us, friend, that, that fear changes into something very, very different. It changes from a fear of hell to a security of safety. It changes into something that we're absorbed into this family of God, the living God. And I just simply want to say this for every person, whether, you know, especially for those who aren't walking with the Lord. Man, I just, I can't urge you enough how seriously you need to take these moments. The illumination of the mind, the illumination of the heart, because there may come a time where that illumination ends. And I wouldn't want, man, that sounds so manipulative. That is not my heart, please. If you know me, I think you know my heart. But I do want to tell you the truth. And that's a reality that we all face. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Our prayer ministry folks are, are coming into place here. Um, and these folks want to pray with you for anything. If you need anything, any needs in your life for healing, if you're facing sickness or uncertainty, they want to pray for you or just, you know what? I need a fresh dose of the Holy Ghost. They want to pray with you today. Um, but for all of us, I think, I think it's a good moment just to kind of observe and to reevaluate, Lord, have I recognized the work that you've done? And have I responded? Have I looked have I thrown myself on your mercy that I may live in eternal life? Amen. Father, this morning, I give thanks to the Lord for his faithfulness. I give thanks, Lord, that you saw the lost and you went out to find us. And I thank you, Lord, that you are pursuing hearts even right now. I'm praying in this moment, Lord, that you are opening eyes to see the severity of this situation and to truly no longer rely on anything else but the finished work of Christ. Thank you for the word of the Lord through Jesus and through Moses. I pray, Lord, that you will help those of us who believe to be filled with a new level of gratitude and appreciation for all the work that you're doing in us. Thank you for this beautiful church family. Thank you for the strength and the maturity that exists here. Please help us to continue growing in our understanding, our knowledge of our Savior, our Lord, whom we depend on. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen.